Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we examine claims of horrific conditions within some Georgia prisons. The Southern Center for Human Rights is asking the U.S. Department of Justice to intervene. Almost every week we are hearing about another death inside prisons. We have lost numerous clients in the last few months. Um, it is a real crisis here, and that is why we are, we are imploring the Department of Justice to come down and intervene and investigate what's happening here in our prisons. Part one of our series, Crisis in Georgia Prisons, is coming up in just a moment. But first, this news, the family of an eight-year-old Atlanta girl shot and killed this summer planned to seek legal action against the city of Atlanta. The parents of Zachoria Turner allege city officials knew the area occupied by armed protesters at a Wendy's location was dangerous. Earlier today in a press conference outside the law offices of the Cochran firm, one of the attorneys representing the family, Sean Williams, addressed the notice of intent to sue the city, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, for $12 million. So although Sakori was unfortunately shot on July 4th, the actions of the city of Atlanta, the mayor, the chief, city councilman Shepard started before July 4th. And they violated their ministerial duty to provide protection and health and safety for Sakori and her family. They also allowed and maintained a nuisance to occur on University Avenue, across from the Wendy's, by allowing vigilantes, armed vigilantes, to occupy a public street. And then third, they had a defective road that they allowed and maintained in violation of Georgia codes and laws. And because of this, they were in the best opportunity to protect and serve Socorro and her family, and they did not do it. Now, in other news, prepare for another COVID-19 spike. That seems to be the consensus from health officials. This comes as the world hit a new benchmark in the COVID-19 pandemic. 40 million infections have been confirmed globally, and here in the U.S., it's up to 8 million. This is according to Johns Hopkins University. Public health officials warn the rates of new cases in the U.S. and worldwide are rising at rates we haven't seen for months now. This includes right here in Georgia. Data from the State Department of Public Health reveals new confirmed COVID-19 cases are up 7% in the last week. At the time of this broadcast, 340,558 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed in Georgia. And the number of coronavirus-related hospitalizations is also on the rise. In total, 30,376 have been hospitalized, and of those... 5,663 were ICU admissions. 
and 7,638 deaths have been recorded since March. All of this is according to the State Department of Public Health. And finally, this. 23rd pitch, Bellinger with a fly ball to right field. Cody Bellinger has just given the Dodgers a 4-3 lead. That home run by Cody Bellinger ended the Atlanta Braves season last night. After being up three games to one, Atlanta couldn't muster just one win to take the National League Championship Series and then, of course, go on to the World Series. So the Dodgers will now face Tampa Bay in the World Series starting tomorrow. But hey, the Atlanta Falcons won. Now coming up tomorrow on Closer Look, back in August, Cobb County commissioners approved a $4.8 million to provide grants to renters and homeowners in need of assistance through the County Home Saver Program. Well, the response has been overwhelming. We'll hear how it works, and Ernest Davis, the program developer of the Cobb County Home Saver Program, talks about the challenges with housing in the county. So how would you assess renting affordability in Cobb County? Renting affordability in Cobb County is actually um, um, much more in line with national standards than Atlanta. Atlanta is the city that everyone wants, wants to be in. And unfortunately, when we had the housing crash back in 2009, um, uh, we had a, there were a number of REITs, which are called real estate investment trusts. And they came in and they bought many of the homes that had been lost. And instead of putting those homes back into the market, for people to be able to purchase as affordable housing, mm -hmm. many of those funds kept those houses and um, uh, converted them to rentals. So what has happened is there is a squeeze on rentals in the Atlanta metro area, in the city area rather, and uh, that has caused the amount of rent to go higher. What? But in Cobb County, what we're finding is that the average rent that people are asking for assistance for is around the 950 dollar range mm -hmm. which so that tells us that when you get outside the city of Atlanta um, the rents tend to be a little bit more in line with national what about uh, rents for low-income households rents for low-income households are challenged um, mm -hmm. and I am sorry to say that because um, many people are in America uh, especially in the Atlanta metro area are dealing with what's called uh, mortgage poor or house poor which means that they can barely have enough money to pay their rent, and there's generally not enough money left over for all of the other essentials that's needed, utilities. So there's always this juggling act that tends to happen in the average American's household as to what's going to get paid. And that is a challenge that um, the mortgage industry is seeing as a challenge. Uh, hopefully, the lower rates are, are, are incentivizing people to go from renting to home ownership. Um, and that is something that is very important because a lot of people qualify for home ownership but don't realize they do. The assumption is is that uh, they have to be making uh, a, a lot more money than, than they're making and that if they don't have down payment money, then they can't get into a home. The truth is there is a number of down payment assistance programs that are available for, for people, especially those first-time home buyers that can get them into uh, homes. I've seen some down payment assistance programs as high as $25,000. So people should not assume that the, the option they have is renting. In many cases, someone who's paying a $1,200 uh, rental payment might be able to qualify for a home that can get that mortgage payment down to eight or $900. That's on tomorrow's Closer Look and why Atlanta-based MailChimp is giving employees November 3rd a paid company holiday as well as launching an online voting location finder for Georgians. 
Join us tomorrow here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The following is a quote from the Prison Policy Initiative. Quote, prisons and jails are amplifiers of infectious diseases such as the coronavirus because social distancing is impossible inside and movement in and out of facilities is common. But criminal justice officials have the power to prevent coronavirus deaths. Close quote. COVID-19, this pandemic has hit the nation's prison and correctional facilities particularly hard. Now, the Marshall Project has been tracking confirmed COVID-19 cases. And as of October 6th, they found at least 143,243 people in prison had tested positive for the virus. Here in Georgia, that number is 1,937 and 71 deaths have been reported. That's according to the State Department of Corrections COVID-19 dashboard. Now, a local advocacy organization says the State Department of Corrections could be doing more to keep those who are incarcerated safe, and they're calling on the U.S. Department of Justice to intervene. So now joining me to talk more about this is Sarah Tatanchi. She's the executive director of the Southern Center for Human Rights, and Sarah Garrity, senior counsel at the Southern Center for Human Rights. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us, Rose. So, Sarah Garrity, I'll start with you. How much truth is in that statement that I read from the Prison Policy Initiative? Um, there is a lot of truth in that statement. Um, and in the Georgia prisons, we have we have seen two interrelated problems. There are still widespread uncontrolled outbreaks of COVID-19 uh, at many Georgia prisons, as you've noted. And already depleted staffing has become even more depleted because of the coronavirus, leaving prisons with nowhere near the number of staff needed to supervise and to provide basic services. As a result of that, in recent months, there have been large scale disturbances at two prisons in Georgia. Mm. Uh, These disturbances happened after people were left locked in their cells around the clock for weeks at a time uh, without access to basic things like showers, time out of cell, medical care. We are we are in a, a state of real crisis in the prison system here in Georgia. Sarah Tatanchi, what about you, that statement? Rose, in nearly two decades of doing prison advocacy, I have never seen Georgia prisons so violent, chaotic, um, and that the people inside being treated with such negligence by prison officials. Um, Every week, almost every week, we are hearing about another death inside prisons. We have lost numerous clients in the last few months. Um, It is a real crisis here, and that is why we are are imploring the Department of Justice to come down and intervene and investigate what's happening here in our prisons. Hmm. 
as we know, sometimes numbers tell the story and then sometimes numbers don't tell the story. And the CDC actually found, this is back in August, that data from the Georgia Department of Corrections is likely an undercount, given the fact that there was no mass testing happening at this time. Sarah Tatanchi, let me start with you. You agree that this is likely an undercount, even the number I just gave coming into this segment. When I hear those numbers, Rose, I I cannot possibly see how those can be accurate numbers. Uh, Based on the things we hear from the hundreds of people we are in touch with in Georgia prisons, based on what I know as far as common sense about what's happening right here in our state at large, there is no way that the numbers are as low as what the Georgia Department of Corrections reports that they are. And Sarah, for clarity for our listeners, do you know if the Georgia DOC, if they are conducting any any mass testing throughout the prisons here in the state? Do we know at all? I don't think that we know that for sure. Uh, we at the Southern Center have tried on multiple occasions uh, to find out the answer to that, re- that question, and we have not received uh, responsive information. Um, but as you, as you noted, <clears throat> the CDC has uh, stated that uh, the, the, without widespread testing, without mass testing, the number of reported cases in prisons is likely to be vastly undercounted. Right now, there are 2,000 cases of pre- present uh, cases of coronavirus reported among incarcerated people, but about 1,700 people are reported to have uh, to have recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those, um, some of the people who have been, been become infected are our clients of our office. Um, and um, we have uh, had the experience of, of losing uh, um, some of our clients. And um, those clients who you say you've lost, they died from the virus. Do you know if they were given medical treatment before or did they pass away and then it was discovered that they died from the virus? What, what do we know here? Well, um, I'll give you an example. We, we recently lost uh, one of the people that we represent. I'll call her Miss A. Uh, Miss A was a 78-year-old woman who was at Pulaski State Prison. She'd been incarcerated for 22 years. She was an excellent candidate for parole. Uh, our office wrote to the parole board in April conveying our concern that she was vulnerable to the effects of COVID. We wrote again in July. Uh, no action was taken. She was not released. She contracted COVID and she died alone in a hospital. Uh, This was a woman who was uh, beloved by women at Pulaski. She had a family who loved her. Her son spent the days before her death calling the prison in increasing desperation, trying to figure out what was happening. They did not get to say goodbye. And this was an unnecessary death. This was an older woman. Um, she was in a wheelchair. She did not pose a public safety threat. She had lots of health issues. We would like to see the state agencies involved here, including the parole board, step up. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's my understanding that the board may have considered the effect of COVID-19 in making releases earlier in the pandemic, but in recent months, it's been back to business as usual. We should note that Closer Look reached out to the Georgia Department of Corrections, inviting them on the program and also seeking comment. At the time of this broadcast, we have not received a response. You all have drafted that letter to the Department of Justice um, calling these 
quote, deplorable conditions at three Georgia pr- prisons, Ware State, Macon State, and the Georgia Diagnostic and Classification Prison near Jackson, which is also, I believe, where we carry out the death sentences as well. Have you heard anything from the DOJ? Um, we have had a meeting with the Department of Justice to discuss the conditions in the prisons. We reiterated our request for an investigation. We emphasized the fact that the situation here in Georgia is urgent, and we hope that the department will step in. Uh, the time frame um, and the result of our request for investigation is, is not clear at this point. Ware State and Macon State, those are operated by the Georgia DOC. They're not private prisons, correct? That's right. Uh, That's right. Have y'all noticed any difference in how the prisons are responding to this virus in terms of private, privately operated prisons and the ones operated by the state? Have y'all noticed anything different there? Well, um, there certainly has been a large scale outbreak of COVID-19 at a couple of the private prisons in Georgia. But, um, but certain, but the um, the poor conditions are not isolated to the private prisons. Uh, we understand that the Department of Corrections is in a difficult position here. There are many courageous employees of the department who are who are called on to do a difficult job under ordinary circumstances, and we are not living under ordinary circumstances. Um, but the state prison system simply cannot keep people in a prison where it cannot provide basic services like showers, uh, medical services, supervision. Uh, The conditions that we reported in our letter to the Department of Justice are unacceptable for incarcerated people, and they are unacceptable for staff who work in, in the prisons. Do we know if the staff, are they wearing masks? Someone on this program not too long ago said it's virtually impossible to give masks to everyone that's incarcerated in Georgia's prisons? We have varying accounts, Rose. Um, We've heard um, in some places that people, incarcerated people and staff are getting masks and in some places that they're not. Um, What we certainly do know is that uh, coronavirus continues to spread pretty rampantly at a number of prisons, including Pulaski State Prison, which is a women's prison, uh, where there are currently uh, 69 reported cases. We suspect the number is actually much higher. A coffee correctional facility, one of the private prisons, reports 226 active cases. Wheeler uh, reports 171 active cases. So um, this is a, uh, a situation that is very much not under control. Um, and some of the severe staffing shortages that have accompanied the onset of the pandemic um, are exacerbating the, the, uh, the already problematic conditions in the prison system in Georgia. Well, let's talk about what you all see in terms of how to deal with these problematic issues. So let's first start with the testing. If they could test everyone that's in that's incarcerated in, in Georgia prisons, is that the first step that you all want? That way you get an accurate number of how many infections there are. And then are you looking to maybe have them evaluate those incarcerated folks to see who might be eligible for early release? Are those the first two at the top of the list here. 
we we absolutely would advocate for for um, increased testing, mass testing, in particular, at prisons that have had an outbreak. But there are several other things that our state agencies need to be doing now. First, take, taking a step back, we we have got to take a serious look at the number of people we are incarcerating in the state, including the disproportionate incarceration of African Americans. Um, second, and in the immediate term, we absolutely need our state agencies to be reviewing who can be released now, consistent with law and public safety considerations. So for example, suggested categories for release considerations, people nearing the end of their sentence, people who are medically fragile, people who are older, with a case-by-case -case review to consider public safety implications. Those are a few um, ideas, but I could go on. Well, Sarah. Sorry, I was just going to say that um, we we certainly look to the parole board to do this kind of evaluation of who can and should go home right now. But I don't think that it is limited to the parole board. I think local district attorneys could be making these assessments. Judges could be making this assessment. The important thing to remember is that this is all of our responsibility, and we need to take action quickly. Well, Sarah and Sarah you all both know that based on what you just said, that those actions might take some time. But as it relates to right now and trying to mitigate the spread of this virus, what do you all want to see happen that needs to happen immediately? Um, well, immediately, Rose, the state needs to take some emergency measures to address the uh, COVID-related staffing crisis. In other states like Indiana, for example, the National Guard was called in on a short-term basis when staffing shortages interfered with that state's ability to run um, a prison in a minimally safe way. Uh, similar thing happened in South Carolina. The South Carolina Department of Corrections asked, asked the National Guard for assistance with COVID-19 related uh, staffing shortages. The Department of Corrections in Georgia cannot keep people in a prison where it cannot provide basic services. Um, so, uh, and the other thing, Rose, is that there, there needs to be some transparency and public acknowledgement of the problem here. Uh, to its credit, the department is posting the number of confirmed infections within its prisons, but the department and the state have been pretty silent on the alarming number of homicides, suicides, and COVID-related um, and other um, deaths within its facilities. Well, because when you visit their website, there's a huge banner that says COVID-19 updates. Let's talk about what state lawmakers can do. We have state lawmakers who sit on these committees related to criminal justice, criminal justice reform. Have y'all reached out to any of them? Yes. Um, in fact, one representative, Josh McLaurin, uh, sent a letter that was signed by all freshman members of the House of Representatives of Georgia to the Department of Corrections expressing their deep concerns about what's happening in Georgia prisons and asking for the department to respond. And has he received a response? My understanding is that he received a response uh, and that he was encouraged to continue to send more information to the department. Well, what more information do they need? That's a good question. Um, I, you know, I think what we need is our, all of our state lawmakers to really 
acknowledge this as the crisis that it is, to make the connections between what's happening in our prisons to what's happening in our communities, um, and lean on the state agencies that have the authority to step in and make an impact right away. Well, and also we should note that according to the Georgia Department of Corrections, at least on their website, which at the time of this broadcast was updated on September 10th, saying they have activated an interdisciplinary agency task force to evaluate an emergency response plan, an infection control plan, and other areas that will be affected by COVID-19. That's part of phase one. And then they say there's a phase two, which could include inmate movement. All prison tours are suspended. All volunteer visits are suspended, have been suspended since March 12th. But I'm glad you mentioned the visitation piece because I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the numerous, the countless families that are impacted by this who have loved ones who are incarcerated in Georgia and who have gone now seven months without seeing um, their loved ones, without being with them. Uh, for safety reasons, but are also really suffering from the lack of information from the department. Uh, The number of family members that we hear from that are deeply worried, that are deeply fearful every single day about what's happening inside uh, needs to be acknowledged. These are are Georgia taxpayers, these are voters, and and their concerns matter. Hmm. Sarah Garrity, you want to add anything to that in terms of what the DOC, at least according to their website, what they say they're doing? I think the problem is that um, the measures that have been undertaken so far have just not been effective. Um, We have seen an unprecedented number of homicides and suicides within the Department of Corrections this year and since the onset of the pandemic. Um, So since January 1st of this year, 22 people have been killed inside the prison system. Seven of these homicides happened at a single prison, Macon State Prison, over the course of um, uh, about seven months. Uh, The number of suicides in Georgia prisons has also reached a crisis point. In the last eight months, 19 people have died by suicide in Georgia's prisons. So um, I I guess what I would say in response, um, uh, Rose, is that the steps taken to date have not worked, are not keeping incarcerated people safe, are not keeping staff members safe, and a new approach is needed immediately. The voice you hear is Sarah Garrity, Senior Counsel at the Southern Center for Human Rights. I'm also joined by Sarah Tatanchi, Executive Director of the Southern Center for Human Rights. And we're talking about some of their concerns when it comes to current conditions in some of Georgia's prisons as it relates to COVID-19. And also when we come back, we'll examine some of the riots that took place as well this past summer. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We're going to continue now our conversation with Sarah Tatanchi and Sarah Garrity from the Southern Center for Human Rights. And we're talking about concerns and a letter they have drafted to the Department of Justice to look into current conditions in some of Georgia's prisons. You all actually describe, quote, riots. And you've seen, you say you have video evidence of this. The letter states, and I'm quoting here, Videos taken by incarcerated people uh, that are readily available online show extreme uh, injured prisons covered in blood, prison dorms with no security supervision, groups of men roaming, lockdown dorms armed with machetes, 
and cells with no running water or functioning toilets. And then all this combined with the coronavirus. Um, That's that's right, Rose. Um, A lot of um, the the disturbances that uh, happened in the prison system at Ware, for example, and at Macon State Prison, uh, some of these things were were caught live on, on social media. And in fact, the following video was recorded according to this gentleman on August 4th at Ware State Prison. Here the inmate is describing the conditions inside the prison. They give us peanut butter, peanut butter and cheese with no water. Like no water, don't have no type of water. We get one scoop of water, we get one scoop of ice a day and if we might get that. So this is how we live in Red State Prison. We are on lockdown right now. And so being because of the riot, the reason we riot, reason why the riot pop, because of health issues, leaving us in the room, locked in, not taking our showers, not giving us showers, not doing nothing for us. So this is why Red State had a riot. That's why officers were injured because they cut power off and they refused to give us water and food. And it's been like this for almost two weeks now. Like we've been locked down. My dorm has been locked down for a month. These are not normal things that happen in prisons. They are not things that have um, happened regular with the frequency with which they're happening in the Georgia prison system until recently. Uh, there has been a significant breakdown in security at a number of our prisons, and it is not being responded to appropriately, and people are losing their lives as a result. And I think for our listeners to understand what you all are, are hearing and seeing in the and what you're getting back from families and those who are incarcerated. Is, is Sarah Garrity, can you share someone's story? I'll share a couple of um, incidents that have been reported to us, and, and these are disturbing. Uh, we've seen a video, for example, um, of a man in a closed security prison with a, a dog leash around his neck being led across the dorm and slapped by people. Um, and led into a cell. Uh, We've heard accounts of incarcerated people who were, um, of an incarcerated man who was forced to drink the urine of several other men, uh, again, in a a prison in which there was severe understaffing and and people essentially no supervision. Uh, We've heard the story of another man who uh, witnessed a man on his tear get stabbed um, to the point where his intestines uh, were, were coming out. So when we say that the the prisons are in crisis, we are we are we are not exaggerating. Um, people are uh, fearful for their lives and their safety <clears throat> on a daily basis. And and yes, uh, yes, the Department of Corrections houses some people um, who have been convicted of crimes. But the people who run the prisons have a constitutional duty to take reasonable steps to protect people from a substantial risk of harm. And when a close security prison with 1,500 people in it has six people running security, that is unreasonable. And that is a state failure. And then, Rose, I did just want to mention the going back to the women's prison. 
one of the things that we need to, to reckon with is the, the number of, of African-American people we put in prison. Their lives matter and people are dying avoidable deaths. Uh, we represent a woman named Cassandra Hayes who has been in prison for 14 years for selling $20 worth of cocaine. She does not need to be in prison from any, any kind of public security uh, consideration. She has pre-existing health conditions that put her, her health at risk. She's at a prison with a severe outbreak. She has a family that loves her and she is terrified that she's gonna die. We've notified the department and the board repeatedly of the risk to her and she is still there. Couple questions here, Sarah Garrity. So she has contracted the virus, or she's in fear of? No, she has. She has not yet contracted the virus, but she is at a prison where there is a significant outbreak. With as of today, sixty-nine uh, positive cases, and I think forty-two cases among staff members. Again, we think that's a significant underrepresentation, and um, we are we're really concerned about uh, about what might happen to her if she contracts the virus. Uh, as noted earlier, we have had a, a client die at that prison. And again, just so our listeners are very clear, because Closer Look has not been able to receive comment or response from the Georgia Department of Corrections. You all have not. Have you all reached out to the commissioner or to the governor's office about any of this? Uh, we have reached out repeatedly to the commissioner of the Department of Corrections and um, copied the governor's office on our um, recent correspondence that sets forth in, in significant detail our concerns about conditions in the prison system and the spread of COVID in the prisons. All right. But we have not heard anything back uh, other than the comments that we have read in the press that they are declining to comment due to potential litigation. Well, can they comment on what they're doing though? We sure would appreciate it. We would love to hear, we would love to have more information than what we have right now. When we started this conversation, you all talked about looking at some other states that could be a blueprint for effectively handling this. So other states have done a lot more than Georgia to address these issues responsibly and head on. Uh, in Kentucky, early in the pandemic, the governor commuted sentences of, of a number of people. Uh, later, I think in August, the state commuted the sentences of almost 700 others who were convicted of, of certain lower level offenses and had less than, I think, six months left to serve. Uh, Michigan reportedly reduced its state prison population by about 5% since mid-March. Uh, Georgia did a, a number, did a limited number of releases early in the pandemic, uh, but since then, uh, it, it's essentially been sort of business as usual at, at the parole board. And, and we would just respectfully suggest that um, we are in a still in a state of, of global pandemic. It's not business as usual. Um, and if our state agencies uh, don't fail to act, uh, People are going to lose their lives. Um, and um, unfortunately, many have, but this is going to continue to happen. Um, we, we hope the state will act to, prove, to um, stop more preventable deaths. Sarah Tatanchi, Executive Director of the Southern Center for Human Rights. I was also in conversation with Sarah Garrity, Senior Counsel at the Southern Center for Human Rights. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. 
That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.